This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And now, Veep Thoughts by Kamala Harris. We must together work together to see where we are, where we are headed, where we are going, and our vision for where we should be, but also see it as a moment, yes, to together address the challenges and to work on the opportunities. This has been Veep Thoughts by Kamala Harris. Stew does America. Blaze slash stew is the place to go to get your Blaze TV subscription. Ten bucks off with the promo code stew. Brian Dean Wright breaks down the latest on Russia's invasion coming up in a few minutes. Politicians in D.C. are finally worried about Dianne Feinstein. But first, we start by doing Elon versus Twitter. You know, Twitter is a fascinating part of our culture, isn't it? You know, it's been around seemingly forever, but really, I mean, it hasn't been around all that long. Yet it seems to affect our debate at just completely disproportionate uh, scale uh, than what should be rational. And not that many people really use it. Certainly not that many people use it uh, for politics. Yet the political discussion that goes on on Twitter affects everything. It spreads over all of the media. And the reason for this is the media elites all like it. So they are all on there all the time. Instead of having to go out and do the old school journalism thing where you'd have to you know, search for someone who witnessed an event and try to get a good quote out of them, now they just search Twitter. It makes their jobs a lot easier, which is why they like it so much. Plus, they like getting retweets from all their inside media buddies. This is how Twitter operates. It's a, it's a tea party for journalists and elites in the media. And that's why it has so much outsized effect as far as our political debate goes. Now, the first tweet ever was, of course, Jack uh, from Twitter, and he decided to take advantage of the NFT craze and make a tw- uh, an NFT of his tweet. I'm not even gonna explain what I just said because if you don't know what it means, believe me, you don't need to know what it means, but I will say this, some guy bought it, okay? He said he bought it for $2.9 million, basically a digital picture of a tweet. million dollars. I mean, totally rational society we have right now. Uh, Now he's decided he wants to sell this NFT. And he said, I decided to sell this NFT, the world's first ever tweet, and donate 50% of the proceeds, $25 million or more, to the charity Give Directly. Now, that's a very nice um, idea. Of course, he would make a big profit if he sold it for $50 million, gave 25 to charity. He's profiting $25 million. And it cost him 2.9. So that's a nice profit if that were to happen. Uh, Unfortunately for not only him, but also the charity, not even close. uh, This is the tweet, by the way. It just says, just setting up my Twitter. And you'll note that he spelt Twitter T-W-T-T-R, which was the initial way they were going to... Initially, it was going to be T-W-T-T-R. And then they said, hey, what if we spell the word right? 
Uh, it was a crazy idea. This is the sort of leadership Jack has provided over these many, many years. Um, $2.9 million. Uh, they got a bid. Not quite the $50 million they were hoping for. They got uh, $6,200. It's a little less. But it's only 99.8% less than they were hoping for. So when you think about it that way, well, it's 99, sorry, I should say it's 99.8% less than he paid for it, much less than that compared to what he actually wanted to get for it. I guess this is, this is about the most rational thing that's happened on Twitter in the past 20 years. Uh, this is a bizarre, bizarre place filled with very strange people doing very strange things. And it's become this center of the political discussion in ways that I, for one, am not at all comfortable with. Our problems in America were not due to the idea that we were having too many conversations of length and depth. That was not the issue here. That was not a problem. We were not like, oh, gosh, you know, there's just too much nuance and understanding of these complicated issues. What if we boil it down to one sentence and everyone yells at each other on the Internet? That should solve things. Thanks a lot, Twitter. I really do appreciate it. Uh, now, Elon Musk is a prolific Twitter user, and he does it. Hey, look, I'm back and forth on Elon Musk, frankly. I, I like him sometimes. Sometimes he drives me crazy. You know, one of the uses he's done, uh, he's used uh, Twitter for, is to tweet all sorts of nonsense about the uh, environmental effects of Bitcoin, which, uh, you know, for one of the many thousands of crashes and rebounds of Bitcoin we've seen over the past two years, you know, I don't agree with him on everything. I don't think you do either. Remember, this guy was the heartthrob of the left for many years. He is a guy who made an entire electric car company because of global warming. He is a guy who's building spaceships to escape the planet partially because of global warming. That's how serious he is about it. Now, the fact that I guess he's doing something about it instead of just whining about it on Twitter is, I guess, what makes him the enemy of the left. They just want to use it as a political uh, cudgel. He's actually trying to do something to change the problem. But that being said, he really likes his Twitter. And he's pretty funny on Twitter. He trolls people. He gets people talking about things they weren't talking about before. He's famously screwed up his business a few times by tweeting things he probably shouldn't have as the CEO of the company. And look, he really is doing something. Tesla is doing something. If you go back to, I want to say it was 2006, uh, uh, it's Glenn Beck, CNN Headline News. We did a, a special called Exposed the Climate of Fear. And it was you know, basically presenting, hey, Here's the other side of global warming you never hear in the media. Uh, there are scientists out there saying uh, other things about this. You need to know what they are. And one of the segments we did was about Tesla saying, you know, if this is ever going to be solved, if the left is right on global warming, the way it's going to be solved is with people actually making cars not glorified golf carts that no one wants to drive, but cool cars, cars that are fast. And Tesla was just at the very beginning of doing that. In fact, so, so much at the beginning, it was pre-Elon Musk. Like, Elon Musk is not the founder of, of Tesla. A lot of people think that. There was actually a couple different guys who founded Tesla. Musk was just an early advisor and eventually pushed those guys out. So it wasn't even his original idea, but he has made a lot of progress, and it turned it into, you know, in, by some measures, the biggest car company in the world when you're talking about market cap. So this is a big success story. He's the richest guy in the world. He's got lots of money to throw around. And he's decided to maybe, maybe just maybe, take his passion for tweeting and turn it into owning Twitter. 
Uh, today, he you woke up to the headlines maybe this morning. Elon Musk offers to buy Twitter for $43 billion so he can be transformed as a private company. Let me give you a little part of his rationale here before we get to what I think is really important about this. I invested in Twitter as I believe it's in its potential to be the platform for free speech around the globe. I believe free speech speech is a societal imperative for a functioning democracy. We happen to be a constitutional republic, not a democracy, but of course, elements of democracy are present, so that is important. However, since making my investment, I now realize the company will neither thrive nor serve the societal imperative in its current form. Twitter needs to be transformed as a private company. As a result, I am offering to buy 100% of Twitter for $54.20 or 20 cents per share in cash. Now, let me stop there for a second and say, first of all, he put 420 in the price because he likes making pot jokes. I mean, like, it's 420, 5420, because he likes pot jokes. That's that. I mean, again, he's he's a fun billionaire. I will say, if you were going to be the richest man in the world, this might be might not be the exact topics. You might not buy an electric car company, but you'd probably do fun stuff like this. Anyway, um, it, and I will say this is kind of like the the world's craziest episode of Shark Tank, right? Like, I want to buy 100 percent of Twitter for uh, what is it? You know, 43 billion dollars. Uh, he said it's a 54 percent premium over the day before I began investing in Twitter and 38 percent premium over the day before my investment was publicly announced. My offer is my best and final offer. And if it is not accepted, I would need to reconsider my position as a shareholder. Twitter has extraordinary uh, imp- uh, potential. I will unlock it. And let's be honest about it. He probably will. I mean, Elon Musk has a lot more expertise about Twitter than he ever did about electric cars or spaceships. He kind of got into that and learned it on the fly and wound up kind of turning it into an amazing uh, couple of companies. He'd probably do a great job with Twitter, uh, honestly, at least a heck of a lot better than they're doing now. And, you know, you look at his statement and it seems pretty rational. And he's got them in an incredible position because Sitting there, what is it? It's in the, uh, was it, he's, I think it's like 40 something uh, per share right now. 54.20 is what he offered. Now, a 20%, I think it was about a 20% premium over the current value for a hostile takeover. It is one of those things that's usually not that impressive an offer. You would go high, you'd have to go higher than that to take over a company in this way. As he points out, it's 54% off uh, over what he started paying for it. So he's already made a nice profit. And what he can do now, he's got them in a really tough position. They can take the offer, make massive profits. The one thing about Twitter that has been true from the beginning, for all of its influence, for all the free times people talk about it on the the air. Think about how many media sources every day put up Twitter logos on their screen in the middle of news broadcasts. We do it here all the time. Uh, We talk to you about, oh, here's what this person tweeted. Here's what this person tweeted. These are all commercials for Twitter with all of that influence they still don't seem to be able to figure out how to make any money. You know, there's no reason this company can't be a lot more profitable than it is. And I think Elon Musk could not only make the free speech element of this website better, but take advantage of the influence the site has and make a heck of a lot more money out of this thing. I mean, it just seems like they can't figure out how to get out of their own way. Um, but he's got them in such a tough position because they have proven they can't do this themselves. Their, their stock price was nowhere near the level it's at now when Elon Musk started buying it. And the only reason it's higher now is because Elon Musk started buying it. So if Elon Musk turns around tomorrow and says, OK, you're not going to take my offer. Well, I'm going to sell my nine percent of shares. It's going to go back down to those other levels. They're going to lose billions and billions of dollars. They don't want that. And they have shown no aptitude to be able to take advantage of this 
gigantic free publicity machine they've created. So, honestly, what they should do is take the offer. Now, I don't think they're going to take the offer, or maybe they won't. I don't know. I, I think, because remember, these guys do have a duty to their shareholders, to, uh, a fiduciary duty to, to do the best thing for the shareholders. They can, they're going to convince themselves all they want that uh, this isn't the best thing. But clearly, quite clearly, it is. They did uh, announce this today. Twitter today confirmed that it has received an unsolicited, non-binding proposal from Elon Musk to acquire all of the company's outstanding common stock for $54.20 per share in cash. The Twitter board of directors will carefully review the proposal to determine the course of action that it believes is in the best interest of the company and all Twitter stockholders. They have to, of course, say that. Now, the way the company is structured, they have all these abilities to get around this. You basically can't take over a company um, like this with a hostile takeover because they can constantly issue new shares. They have ways to block uh, someone like Elon Musk from doing this. But if you're a shareholder of Twitter, you're going to be really pissed at them if they don't take this seriously. It's a much better option than what they have going on right now. Not to mention, all of this back and forth about censorship and all of this is Difficult, not only for us as people who might be tweeting or people who care about conservatives who might want to tweet and are getting banned. It's also difficult for the people who work at Twitter, frankly. I mean, it's, there's no way to balance this. Remember, for all the crap we give them for censoring accounts that we don't want censored, there's probably 10 times as much from their buddies who are saying they do want everything censored and they want more, more accounts censored. How can you leave all these conservatives on Twitter with all their hate all the time? They're getting that from the left and from Democratic politicians, and they're getting the opposite from people like us and, con and conservative politicians. It's a no-win. You should just take, cash out. Take the money while you can. Um, Elon Musk uh, talked about why he made the offer in a TED Talk that came today. Here's the clip. Why make that offer? Oh, so, um, well, I think it's very important for uh, there to be an inclusive arena for free speech uh, where... Yeah. Well, yeah. So, uh, yeah. Um, Twitter has become kind of the de facto town square. Um, so, uh, it, it, it's just really important that people have the both the uh, the reality and the perception uh, that they are able to speak freely within the bounds of the law. Um, and you know, so one of the things that I believe Twitter should do is open source the algorithm. Um, and make any changes uh, to people's tweets, you know, if they're emphasized or de-emphasized, uh, that action should be made apparent so you can, anyone can see that that action has been taken. So there's, there's no sort of behind the scenes um, manipulation, either algorithmically or manually. Oh, think about what he's saying there. That's not anything dramatic. It's like saying that, hey, if we're going to censor you, if we're going to make a change in the algorithm, you'll know about it. You'll know kind of what we did. And that, that gives you more information to judge whether we're doing a good job and if you want to keep using the site. It's a totally fair request. Now, uh, there was a, kind of a big hubbub about part of this uh, particular talk by Elon Musk. Uh, he says he's not sure he'll be able to buy Twitter after the $43 billion bid, and he teases a plan B. I don't know. I didn't really take that tone out of it. It seemed like he was just like, basically like, if they don't let me have this at 43 billion, I'm gonna go after it another way. It's kind of the way I took it. Here's the clip, uh, what do you think? So, you don't like to lose. If in this case, you are not successful in, you know, the board does not accept your offer, you've said you won't go higher, is there a plan B? There is. 
I think we, I think we would like to hear a little bit about Plan B. For, for another time, I think. Another time? Yeah. All right. <laughs> okay, you know, he's not the greatest interview in the world. Um, I will say that uh, when you watch it in context, I really don't think it was much of a, I don't think he's going to have a problem coming up with the $43 billion. Now, it does mean, he doesn't, he doesn't have 40 to $3 billion in cash laying around. He's got a lot more than that when it comes to stock and all these other things. He can take out loans against some of that stock. There's ways he can get money. He probably would bring in other investors. But honestly, you think Elon Musk is really going to have a problem coming up with $43 billion? It's hard for me to believe. I mean, uh, I think he's probably going to be able to do that. He also talked about the reasons why he wanted to take over Twitter and why uh, free speech is important and what he believes should happen on Twitter. And listen to this wording carefully, because I think it's interesting to not only uh, the, the left or Twitter shareholders who want to see what's going on, but conservatives as well. Listen. And I'm not saying this is, that I have all the answers here, um, but I, I, I do think that we want to be just very reluctant to delete things and, and have um, just, just be very cautious with, with, with per permanent bans. Uh, you know, timeouts, I think, are better or, uh, than, than, than sort of permanent bans. And, um, uh, but just, just in general, like I said, how, how, it won't be perfect, but I think we want it to really uh, have, like I said, the perception and reality that speech is as free as reasonably possible. Now, I just want to... I just want you to hear that because what he's saying there basically is that if this works and he takes control, you're going to wind up hating him too. And that's because it's probably going to happen. Um, you know, he talked about being cautious with permanent bans, not eliminating permanent bans. So it's not the free speech vision maybe that that I would argue for. Uh, also, he said he wants to use more timeouts, which would be suspensions, right? I mean, so this stuff could still happen. It's just maybe he'd be targeting more like abusive speech rather than just, I like lower taxes. Uh, that shouldn't be uh, banned as well. Um, you know, it's really fascinating to watch this uh, kind of go on. If you see uh, how the left is treating this, um, Glenn Greenwald has a great observation in, in his, one of his pieces today. Um, talking about the left and the media and how they have somehow inverted history so that they now believe that it is not censorship that is the favored tool of fascists, tyrants, and authoritarians, even though every fascist and despot in history has used censorship as a key means for maintaining power. But instead, the media, the modern left, believe that it is free speech, free discourse, and free thought that are the instruments of repression. Well, that's absolutely crazy to the point where a professor at SUNY today tweeted this, which is amazing. Today on Twitter feels like the last evening at a Berlin nightclub at the twilight of, the, of Weimar, Germany. Hey, Elon might take over. And that means we have Hitler is basically what he's saying. This is crazy. Look, the truth is that Elon Musk possibly buying Twitter reveals a lot. But it's less about Elon Musk and it's less about Twitter than it is about the left in general. There is consternation from blue checks in the media and outright panic from the left-wing employees on Twitter. And for what? For the possibility that maybe, just maybe, they may have to be on the same website as a conservative? Not that they actually have to read anything that a conservative wrote, no, no. They can block all of them out of their feeds. It's not about them reading something they don't like. It never has been. The problem with conservatives being allowed to speak their minds is that someone else 
might see their views. Someone else might come into contact with the view that lower taxes are not racism or that kids shouldn't be taught about hardcore sex in second grade. And maybe, just maybe, that person might be persuaded. And the left wing in this country just cannot let that happen. The only way they can be sure that you're going to think the correct way is that if you never hear the alternative. So that's the goal. Silence the opposition. Cast them away into the nether regions of our politics. A digital gulag for them, and away they go forever. Remember, literally no one thinks that Elon Musk wants to buy Twitter so that he can start censoring liberal content. The risk with Elon Musk is that he won't censor enough. In theory, the concern is that too many people will be allowed to have their opinions heard. And this idea is what gives liberals nightmares. I know that I don't want any left-wing nonsense censored. If they start censoring left-wingers, I will have nothing to talk about every day. But Twitter should take the money here. They should take the money and run. They can't figure out how to make company uh, that is this influential into the cash machine that it should be. And they can't figure out how to just let people speak freely either. So they're failing on both counts. If they don't want Twitter stock to do the same thing that just happened to the NFT of Jack's first tweet, then they should take the money and run now and let free speech make a comeback. You've heard me talk about how important it is to have a VPN and protect your online privacy, but choosing a VPN you trust is equally as important. I can say I have made that choice. And it was easy for me. When I did my homework, I picked ExpressVPN. It's the best VPN on the market. Here's why. ExpressVPN doesn't log your activity online. They developed a technology, trusted server, that makes their VPN servers incapable of storing any data at all. So it's pretty much covered. ExpressVPN now uses Lightway. It's a new VPN protocol they engineered to make user speeds faster than ever so you can stream videos in HD quality with zero buffering. Plus, it's easy and simple to use. You don't need any technical skills to do it. I mean, even I can do it. I do it all the time. I need to press one button. It's on in like seconds. Uh, Business Insider, The Verge, many other uh, tech journals rate ExpressVPN the number one VPN in the world. Protect yourself with a VPN that I use and I trust. It's expressvpn.com slash stew. You go there today, get an extra three months for free and on a one-year package. It's expressvpn.com slash stew. Expressvpn.com slash stew. Go there to learn more. Joining us now is Brian Dean Wright. He's a former CIA operations officer and the host of the brand new podcast. It's a great one. The President's Daily Brief or the PDB for, sh- for short. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Great information and perspective from this one. Uh, Brian, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, really appreciate it. Um, I've been following you on Twitter for a while and really appreciate your perspective on, on especially foreign affairs. And I want to get into a bunch of that, but let's start here. I uh, have a timeshare in outer Mongolia. I've gone there. I'm off the grid. I've been on vacation for the past six months. I come back. I need to understand what has gone on between Russia and Ukraine. How do you explain it to that person? Well, Russia wants a chunk of Ukraine because uh, historically that's where it's been invaded. So geopolitically, that's why they are in Ukraine. Second, The Russians are worried about NATO expanding, and so they want to create a buffer state between other parts of NATO and itself. So I would say those are the two main reasons. The third, and perhaps most important for those of us in the West, 
Russia is led by a man who is going a bit crazy these days. Now, he's smart as a fox, but we also have to understand he's not necessarily the most stable of people. So that's probably feeding into why he specifically chose this moment to do what he has done. Uh, How do you feel about the way the media has talked about this? Um, Because, you know, Russia seems to be to me to be the aggressor here. However, they seem, you know, by all reporting, they went in trying to take over the whole country, have now backed off of that. Do you believe that was the was the wider invasion sort of a head fake to get this region on the east? How should we understand this? Well, I think in terms of understanding, you know, should we or, or can we be involved in this? So let's start there. Yes, I think there's a reason for us to be sending our equipment and some of our money to, to create uh, a, a pushback against Putin, because this is ultimately not just about what Putin sees us do, but it's really what the rest of the world sees in terms of our resolve to stop an, an act of aggression, which is exactly what it is. So I think what we're doing so far is modestly smart. The issue is what exactly we're sending, so the, the specific kind of equipment. And ultimately, what does Moscow think about that is how far across the red line does that go for them? And that means, are they gonna attack us based on what we're doing? So I think from our own calculus, we have to be really careful about how much we bog the Russians down and exactly what we're giving the Ukrainians. So that's the first place that I think that we as Americans should be thinking about is, all right, we wanna support the Ukrainians to stop this aggression, but also be very mindful of the fact that Moscow can strike us back. So we wanna poke, poke this bear that is in Moscow, but we don't wanna do it to such an extent that Moscow strikes us back here in the homeland and making life very, very miserable for all of us. Yeah, you bring up a really interesting point here. And this is one I thought about several times, and I know you've talked about it on Twitter as well, which is like, we want to be involved. We want to help. We, it does feel like, you know, you have this country who is being bowled over by their bigger neighbor. Uh, it's, we, don't, we don't want the world to be breaking out in war. We want to help. On the other hand, there is that line. And I think if you ask the average American, they don't want to get involved so much that we're getting this big piece of retaliation coming back at us from uh, from the Russian uh, military or government. And, you know, I just don't know. Do you think the American people are ready for a massive cyber attack? Are they willing to pay that price for this effort? No, we are all rightfully focused on inflation. Right. If you look at every single polling, you talk to your friends, you live your own life, you know that what you're focused on right now is trying to make sure how you pay for your bills. And if you're running out of money, which a lot of us are between paychecks, you're leaning on your credit cards. So that's where our heads are focused. We appreciate, we're fearful of, and we're sad about what's happening in Ukraine, but we're trying to take care of our own families and our own selves. So this idea of cyber attacks, we might have heard of it, but we're not really focused on it. But we should be. Uh, It's just unfortunately our economy is in the crapper and that's where we're all rightfully focused. Cyber attacks are a big deal. I don't think that the Russians are going to attack the entire United States. I think they're going to pick different parts of the country, different cities, and they're going to choose those cities based on the amount of drama that that then creates, the amount of chaos that that creates. So look for those kinds of cyber attacks. The FBI, the, the NSA, they're looking at this as well. They know those are probably going to, to come. They're actually sneaking, and we have some good reporting on this, they're actually going into American companies and fixing some of these cyber holes that otherwise the Russians could exploit. Lots of problems with that potentially in terms of the abuse of power. But nevertheless, the government knows that this could be an issue. They're trying to do what they can, but the Russians only have to find one little hole to sneak in and then they create problems so that we can't be 100% correct or we can't be 100% preventative 
So it will come, it will happen. It's just we don't know when and where just yet. Uh, you know, you, Brian, you, you look at the the uh, the generalized uh, view here, which is you see, you know, cities like Mariupol being you know completely destroyed, uh, and it doesn't seem like there's any line that Vladimir Putin wouldn't cross. Uh, we don't. He almost doesn't seem like he needs our help to come up with some new terrible thing to do. On the other hand, like there's been reporting, and you know, you were in the CIA, you you know this better than anybody. There's been reporting uh, where we are not necessarily just sending equipment, but we're actually helping uh, Ukrainian soldiers target specific groups of military on the Russian side. And, you know, look, I, I have no sympathy for Russia in this, in this uh, battle. On the other hand, I know that if this happened to us and the other side was admitting it, we would be very aggressive in our response toward that third nation who said they weren't involved. Where is the line and do you have any confidence our government can walk it? You are so very right. That's exactly what I've been talking about. Smart people understand this. That, that Look, Vladimir Putin is a spy, a former spy, worked with the KGB. He knows the game uh, that we're playing because the Russians played this too during the Soviet era. They bogged us down in different places around the world. So Putin knows that we're gonna do this He's going to tolerate a certain amount of it. But the real you know, question, the, the struggle is at what point do we cross the line and what does that line look like? I think you and I would share the, the view that when we start sending the Ukrainians intelligence to say, hey, look, here's a bunch of soldiers, kill them with our weaponry. We're starting to cross a line rather than saying, hey, Ukraine, you figure it out, but here's the weaponry. From a, a spy's perspective, those are two very, very different things. When we start targeting tanks and or Russian soldiers, when we are drawing the X over the head of a Russian person or a Russian piece of equipment, now we are basically pulling the trigger from the Russian perspective. That doesn't mean that we care necessarily in what the Russians think of us, right? But we care in that once they think that we're really engaged, we've crossed the line, that trips their requirement internally with those hawks that want to attack us to say, all right, they cross the line. Let's let's uh, attack America. Do I think that we in the U.S. government understand that and and we are, are finding a good line? I'm not so sure. The people at the Pentagon, they are the folks who put together a 20-year war in Afghanistan. They lost. We retreated in August. So I'm not real confident in our political leadership or our military leadership right now. That I think needs to be addressed. We got to change that, and then I'll feel more comfortable about our response and our understanding of what this red line could be for us and Moscow. I'm glad you brought up Afghanistan because I, to me, that's a, this is a long conflict here, obviously, in this region, but that, this is an important part of it. You know, you have our, our disastrous uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan. Then you have uh, Biden before they invade talking about a minor incursion might just be okay. Then you have a situation where Biden, multiple gaffes in his Poland speech, which seems to say that we're going for regime change. Yesterday, he seemingly blurts out uh, that we're calling it now officially a genocide during a question about gas prices. I am terrified that he's going to just gaff us into this war in a much bigger way. Is that a legitimate concern? And how do you look at Biden's performance so far? I, I share your concern, and I think most reasonable people uh, share your concern. If Look, we can look at the data, which show, uh, shows that the American people are worried or anxious about Biden's mental state, whether he has dementia or some sort of in, you know, incapacitation based on his age. He's almost 80 years old. So I don't think that it's unreasonable to say, hey, do we have the best commander in chief uh, in charge right now? I don't think that we do. 
So the question becomes, what does the world think, right? Because they're looking at possibly taking advantage if they think that the West or the United States has an incapacitated leader. Uh, and so, you know, there was a, a video that came out yesterday from Saudi Arabia where the Saudis were basically making fun of Joe Biden, his mental inability to, to conduct himself. So the world is watching and they're going to take advantage in lots of different ways. And that's really, really scary. <laughs> it is terrifying. OK, um, I know you can't predict the future here, Brian, but but if you wanted to, if you could look ahead here a little bit, you've seen these things happen before. You've you've watched this. These are types of events around the world throughout your career. How do you see this thing settling and what's the timeline on it? Yeah, I, I think it's going to be years because from Putin's perspective, he is all in. He's looking at 60,000 more troops being called up in the next couple of months. This is a man who understands that he, if he fails, it's his head, quite literally. They, they will, there will be an internal uprising at some level, but with some people, and he's dead. So he is all in on this. So the question is, knowing that, how does the West work with him or his folks quietly to resolve this through some kind of diplomatic means? That's how this ends. Otherwise, we're gonna have a much, much greater risk of a big, very, very big war, not just between ourselves and, and uh, the Russians, but we're looking at involving the Chinese uh, in this as well, and that's what I'm scared of. So we've gotta focus on the diplomacy piece. We bog Putin uh, down. He understands it's gonna be messy if he doesn't have a, a, a diplomatic solution, so he comes to the table as well. So at least a good number of months more and more fighting, but absent that, it could be years of going through this. Mm. Um, let's switch gears and come a little closer to home here. Uh, May 23rd is, is the supposed day that they're going to get rid of Title 42 on the border. Uh, yeah. This uh, Look, the, the border, I think, has been really undercovered as a one of many catastrophes in the Joe Biden presidency so far. It's been really bad since day one and has not let up. In fact, many ways has become worse. Now they're thinking of lifting Title 42, which everyone seems to predict on both sides of the aisle is going to create a massive influx of illegal immigration at the border and a crisis there. What should we be looking for here in the next month? I'll tell you, uh, the Mexican government has also said that they expect or anticipate that if Title 42 is lifted, there's going to be an absolute exodus from Mexico into the United States. So this isn't a, an American issue. This is a multinational issue. This isn't just the Republicans getting cranky with the Democrats. The, folks see what's going on down there. They know what's going to happen as soon as this Title 42 is lifted. That's why I think you're seeing Operation uh, Lone Star. That's the effort by the governor of Texas to do whatever he can to stop this mess. So God willing, over the next month, there are gonna be a lot of cranky people calling up the Biden administration saying, don't do it. Uh, he's got a lot of pressure from the radical left in, in his party, the Ocasio-Cortez's and the rest. They're saying, no, get rid of it. They wanna abolish ICE, right, all that stuff. So there's a tension within the left right now of exactly what to do here. But from a national security perspective, there is no doubt or question of what we need to do. We've got over 100 uh, different countries represented and all those tens of thousands of people waiting to come over. They're unvetted. We don't know where those people are, are uh, you know, what they intend to do in this country, God forbid. Even if most of them are peaceful, some of them might not be. How do we vet them? It is a mess from a national security perspective, and we've got to solve it in the next month, or we are in big, big trouble. I will say, at least you've got, you're going to have something to talk about on your podcast. <laughs> There's going to be no <laughs> shortage of material. Can you kind of give me a rundown? I, I know the podcast just started this week. It's really, really good. Tell me about you. What, you know, what you're doing and, and why you're trying to do it this way. So the actual President's Daily Brief, it's a it's a document and or a brief that's delivered to the President of the United States every morning between 4 and 6 a.m. usually. 
and it contains a bunch of different classified pieces of information, intelligence, sometimes covert action. And it tells the president, look, in the last 24 hours, here are the issues uh, that had percolated. Here's what you need to know. Second, here's why you should care. You hear the implications uh, on the country. And then third, what do we do to solve this? What are the, the different uh, you know, solutions to the problems? And that's really what I'm uh, doing in the podcast is I'm saying, all right, American people, here are the things that you need to focus on that have happened in the last 24 hours. Here's why I think it impacts you and your family, why you should care. And then finally, are there solutions as people that we can think about uh, and or is this an issue that we need to, to you know, hold our, our politicians accountable to uh, next November in the midterm elections or, or otherwise. So I try to focus on solutions as well. So I, I'm hoping that people grasp that. And I do think that people are seeing that. It's a little bit different than a lot of other uh, podcasts and, and uh, you know, ways of reaching folks. So I'm, I'm, I'm pretty excited by it. That's, that's great. Uh, and it's available every morning? It is, in fact, by 6 a.m. All right. Very cool. Brian Dean Wright. Uh, the new podcast is The PDB, The President's Daily Brief. It's available uh, wherever you get your podcast. Make sure to go and subscribe to it today. Brian, thanks for coming on the program. Absolute pleasure. Really a disturbing story out of California today. Uh, this is San Francisco Chronicle. Let me give you a, a quick uh, anecdote from it. Uh, when a California Democrat in Congress recently engaged in an extended conversation with Dianne Feinstein, they prepared for a rigorous policy discussion like those they'd had many times over the last 15 years. Instead, the lawmakers said they had to reintroduce themselves to Feinstein multiple times during the interaction that lasted several hours. Rather than delve into policy, Feinstein, 88, repeated the same small talk questions like asking the law uh, lawmaker what mattered to voters in their district. And the members of Congress said uh, with no apparent recognition that the two had already had a similar conversation. The episode was so unnerving, the lawmaker who spoke to the San Francisco Chronicle on condition they not be identified because of the sensitivity of the topic began raising concerns with colleagues to see if some kind of intervention to persuade Feinstein to retire was possible. Her term runs to the end of 2024. I've worked with her for a long time. I know that what she was just a few years ago, always in command, always in charge, on top of the details, basically couldn't resist a conversation where she was driving some bill or some idea. All of that is gone. She was an intellectual and political force not that long ago, and that's why my encounter with her was so jarring, because there was just no trace of that. Now, look, this happens to everybody. I remember having a conversation uh, with my uh, my grandma who wound up, you know, having issues like this where she went into the the you know, world where she couldn't, you know, she should have to re reintroduce herself uh, to you during the conversation. She'd forget that she had just talked to you the day before. And it just slowly went to that point where, you know, she couldn't recognize you at all anymore. I mean, I think everybody's been through this at some level with someone in their family. It really is devastating. And that's why, you know, we joke about Joe Biden uh, bumbling around. He's not, I don't think, to this level yet, but how far away is he? I mean, how far away is he? Uh, you know, Feinstein, obviously, if this is true and not just some political attack from, you know, somebody else who wants the gig, we have to allow for that possibility, I think, here. But it does seem to be there's not there's several different instances here that they're citing in the story. If this is true, it's really sad. I mean, it really is sad, whether you like Feinstein or not. Now, it is notable that this all started with Feinstein after she seemed to be nice to a conservative appointee to the Supreme Court. All of a sudden, she was the worst person in the world after that. Uh, but I don't know how far away is Biden. I hope it's I hope it's years, but it doesn't feel like years. Um, we'll see. By the way, Joe Biden, a new approval rating out today. Lowest, once again, with CNBC, 38 percent, which makes you think 
What's wrong with those 38% of people? Back in a second. When Tika Tawari first started talking about blockchain back in 2016, people called him crazy, uh, but they didn't understand the, this technology. And honestly, a lot of people to this day don't. I think a lot of people do believe they're too late on, on Bitcoin and cryptocurrency. And I can kind of understand that. I mean, I remember back in the day in 2017 when 20,000 seemed like a huge bubble and we'd never come back to those, those levels ever again. It was a, remember, it was a tulip it was the tulip craze. Uh, it, was, it was the tulip bubble. Well, now we're back around 40,000, and people aren't saying that as often anymore. But if you haven't bought Bitcoin, you're still really early on this. I mean, we look at the percentage of the world that owns Bitcoin, there's not a high percentage at all. You're still very early. But you've got to do your own research. You've got to understand what you're getting yourself into. It can be volatile. Tika Tawari can walk you through this and show you all the ins and outs of this with his Palm Beach letter. He's done many appearances with Glenn on the radio, and he's been on with us a bunch of times. He knows this stuff. BigTReport.com is his website, and you can go there and get the Palm Beach letter from Tika Tawari at BigTReport.com. Check it out now, BigTReport.com. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast wherever you are right now. Even if you're driving in the middle of the road going 80 miles an hour, look down at your phone and subscribe to this podcast right at this instant. We are not responsible for anything that happens if you do that. Um, consider this, comes one review. You should do an episode about earmarks, for example. The Senate might be arguing about infrastructure, and one guy is like, I wonder what happens when bears take PCP. And then a bill has a $20 million study on that when it was supposed to be only about roads. That is the story of our country uh, right now. You can comment on Facebook and YouTube as well. This one from Facebook. How can anyone even ask the question, is Biden fit to lead the country? The answer is obvious to apparently everyone except the people in the Biden family. And uh, from YouTube, uh, Seek Wisdom writes, this show is really good. Love, Stu. Um, the good thing about that one is, uh, luckily the comma wasn't later after the love, because then you'd know it was from me. And this show is really good. Love, Stu. Back in a second. Okay, so here's what happened. A uh, game the other night between the Clippers and Timberwolves had a bit of an interruption. Let me give you a quick preview as to what occurred. Allie, what do you see down there? I know that wasn't I, you doing the graffiti, but what, what, what was going on? It's worse than graffiti. I was just told by security that she apparently had glue, and she glued herself to the floor. Oh. And she refused to lift her wrist up. And I don't mean to laugh, but this really happened. She glued her wrist to the floor, and they were trying to pull her off, and she was resisting trying to keep her wrist glued down it to the was, floor. It was a protest of some sort, I'm assuming. Oh. Allie? I think that's a fair assumption. <laughs> Uh, actually, no, she's just an idiot. Uh, that's all. Was, uh, not, not a protest. She's just an idiot. Um, here's some pictures uh, from, the, from the moment. Here she is on the court. Here she is. There we go. And uh, we got her there. Here she is being carried off. And, of course, she left uh, this on the, on the court. Now, this is what I used to always argue was happening when I would try to play basketball and they would make fun of my vertical leap. And I would say, there's glue on the ground. It's not my fault. Uh, apparently, it had something to do with an animal... Um, an animal protest, I guess. Uh, the T-shirt said, Glenn Taylor roasts animals alive to protest the mass killing of chickens. And to be honest, if you don't want chickens to be killed, what else would you do but glue yourself to a basketball court? 
I, I have no other I have no other possibilities, no other solutions to that problem other than that. So I guess she solved the problem and all chickens will now be everlasting uh, creatures. Anyway, VeepThoughts.com is the place to go to get all the Veep Thoughts. We had a new one today. Don't miss it. Share it. Uh, VeepThoughts.com for all of them in one handy dandy package. We will see you tomorrow.